Today's Gospel reading is from Matthew chapter 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with the truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose image is this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. The Gospel of our Lord. Allison, you may be seated. Grace and peace to you this morning. When I think about our church and what we do here, my greatest hope is that this is a place where, more than any other place in the world, we can come and name life as it is honestly, knowing God meets us in our joys and in our pains, and then, by God's grace, a place where we can imagine the world differently where we can join God in dreaming a new world into being. My hope is that this is a space that's free from the thinking we hear in other places, thinking that tells us that we are not enough, or that there isn't enough to go around, or that other people are threats to us, and that hoping for a better world is futile and misguided. This ought to be a space where we can remember God and dream together with God. In Jesus' time, the temple in Jerusalem, where this story takes place, it was the same way. It was a holy place. It was a place set apart, a place where God's divine name rested Jesus and his fellow Jews were living under Roman rule, and in their lives they were constantly being reminded at every turn that their lives and their destiny as a nation were not their own, but belonged to the whims of Emperor Caesar and his military might. The temple was the one place where they could go to be free from that occupying force. It was a place where they could name a different reality. And that reality was this. The same God who brought their ancestors out of slavery in Egypt was still with them now, and that even though they were occupied as a country, God was bigger and more real than the forces marshaled against them. Now, to ensure that people experienced a difference between outside the temple and inside the temple, 
The religious authorities prohibited anything within its walls that would remind people of Roman rule. In fact, they even had a special temple currency that you had to use while you were there. Having Roman currency in the temple, it was a no-no. This is why it's so fascinating in this story that Jesus, when challenged by his opponents on the question of paying taxes, has them produce a Roman coin. Jesus doesn't have the emperor's coin on him, but his opponents do. And you can see what this is about. You can see what Jesus is getting at. His opponents have brought the image of Caesar and the violent worldview that he stood for into the holy temple. We often get down on Pharisees for following the letter of the law instead of its spirit. But what if the problem of the Pharisees wasn't religious legalism, but a failure to dream with God? What if their problem was that they had failed to imagine deeply enough to envision this world filled with God's abundant love and blessing? What if their problem was a cynicism that made peace too easily with the world as it was? That's what having a Roman coin on them in the temple suggests. In the temple, which was the one place the Jewish people tried to set aside to remember God's faithfulness as the highest and most real, real reality there is, the Pharisees have still let the imagination of the empire creep in. They have let the violent ways of imperial rule that pit people against each other and reward the strong and powerful while leaving everyone else behind replace their stories of a God who comes close to enslaved and hurting people, bringing freedom and life and hope. They have thought that the world as it is is more real than the world that could be, the world that God dreams of. So Jesus has them produce a Roman coin within the temple, which shows their failure to imagine the world differently with God. And then he asks them this question, whose image is this? In asking this question, in using this word image, Jesus is being very, very clever. As a Jew talking to other Jews, he knows that the word image will trigger in the minds of his opponents nothing less than the Ten Commandments, where God prohibits depicting God's image through pictures or sculptures or graven images. And why doesn't God want graven images? Doesn't God like art? Doesn't God want people to know what God's own self looks like? Jesus knows his opponents know this answer as well, because as good Jews, they've all read Genesis 1, where God says that God's image is inscribed not on coins, but on all humans who have ever lived. God's image is humanity. How wild is that? 
if I want to know what God looks like, I look to you. If I want to know what God sounds like, I listen to you. Knowing other people helps me to know God. Loving other people is loving God's image on earth. And just by using that word, image, Jesus is reminding his opponents that they are beloved of God and that their lives, all lives, are holy. Jesus then proceeds to say, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. And this might seem, right, like it's a tidy separation of our religious life and our political life, but given Jesus' question about the image on the coin and his implication about where God's image really lies, I think Jesus is saying something else. Jesus is reminding us that our call is always to point to God and God's image on earth as the objects of our ultimate concern. We are called to uphold the inherent dignity of people and the goodness of creation itself. No matter how we organize our common life, whether we live in a democracy or an empire, no matter who is filling the offices that make decisions about our public life and policy, God calls us to show up in the public sphere with the message that all people bear the image of God and ought to be treated with reverence. What we give to the emperor or to any ruling authorities is not so much taxes or obedience to laws, but the reminder that each human life has value to God and that God longs for each life to flourish. Many of you did this this past week. You showed up at Plymouth City Hall and said people in our community are hurting. They can't afford housing here. These people are sacred to God, and when we leave them to their own suffering, we are denying that they bear God's image. But we have an opportunity to honor God's image in them by building affordable housing. That's what giving to the emperor looks like. It's less about blind obedience to authority and paying taxes out of grim obligation and more about finding creative opportunities to engage and say, people are holy and deserve to be treated as such. Giving to the emperor is about saying, yes, I can live in an imperfect world. I can play by the rules that it gives. I can be cooperative and civil and make compromises. But at the end of the day, I'm going to remember that I bear God's image and that other people do as well. And that's going to guide how I show up and use my voice and my power. Now, Jesus only speaks here about the image of God as it relates to government and politics and policy, but the image of God in our lives is so much bigger than that. It's in everything we do. God's holy image is stamped over our whole lives, our bank accounts and marriages, our friendships, our parenting, 
our careers, questions, and grief. God is in all of those things and more. How is God inviting you to use those parts of your life to give life to the world? How is God calling you to recognize God's image in others? How is God calling you to see God's image in your own self? We're going to be talking this coming month about what's possible at Mount Olivet when we work and engage and invest together. I don't know what the future holds for any of us, but I can tell you this much. Because of your involvement, because of your commitment to this community, we are becoming a place that names God's image in ourselves and others, both here in this space and in the wider community. We are becoming a place that you can come to honestly and openly about wherever you are in your life, and a place where you leave with a deeper connection to God's vision of abundant life for you and all creation. We are becoming a place where, by God's grace, God's vision of how the world should be is becoming more real in our life together than that narrative of power and fear and scarcity offered in so many other corners of the world. It's an exciting time to be church together. But more exciting still is God's promise to be with us in it all, coming so close to us and to our neighbors that God's very image is sealed onto our hearts and our bodies and our minds forever. Amen.